Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lease. Hey guys, welcome back to State of Fear Podcast. My name is Chris, your host, and with me every week because he likes my face, it's my good friend James. <laughs> hey, what's up everybody? What's going on guys? All right, James, we are back for Robert J. Extremely Gross Man Part 2. Part 2. Part yes. 2 for the great Episode state of Missouri. Episode 26. Episode 26, Robert Gross Part 2. Um, I, I don't know if the disgust... And the, the shame has washed off me from last week. I'm taking I, plenty of showers. I'll I tell you what, I've, I've barely gotten over it, and here we are about to go wallowing around in it again. <laughs> so let's do it, man. Hey, guys. Chris from State of Fear here. Just want to take a minute to say thank you to all the new listeners that we got all over the world. The last few weeks, we noticed that we've gotten a bunch of new listeners from everywhere, and we wanted to say thanks to the new listeners in Poland, in Norway, Sweden, the Philippines, we've got new ones in Israel, India, Brazil, China, Belgium, and our newest listener in Japan, I just personally want to say, And if I didn't mention your country, thank you anyway. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all the great listeners here in the great U.S. of A. We love everyone, and uh, if you feel like it, drop us a review or a rating on your favorite podcasting app. All right, guys, back to the show. Yeah, but but first, you know, we didn't do any interesting facts about our about the great state we're covering this week or these these last two weeks. Uh, Damn, last us. Time. so let's just, let's do them this time. We need to be slapped across the face just, with a wet bunch of fettuccine. Mm, just slap, pat, fettuccine. Uh, so let's go, let's go. Um, so eight different states border Missouri. Name them correctly without a map to win. And you guys are awesome. Eight different states. Can you believe that? Eight states. Eight states. That's, That's amazing. Something else. That's amazing. Missouri was named after a tribe of Sioux Indians called the Missouris, which often mistranslated as muddy water. The word totally actually means town of the large canoes. Town of large canoes. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Uh, so the Show Me State should probably be called the Read Me State because many famous writers are Missourians, including T.S. Eliot, Maya Angelou, 
Mark Twain, Tennessee Williams, and Sarah Teasdale. Very cool. With more than 6,000 known caves, Missouri is also known as the cave state. And there's a lot of caves. I didn't I realize didn't that. that. That's amazing. Yeah. Richland, Missouri is the only city in the U.S. with a cave restaurant. That's cool. Is it? Yeah, apparently I thought it is. Some, I thought some other places had little snack shops and stuff like that, but an actual restaurant, probably not. You're talking about like in the mall and stuff? No, I'm talking about like in, oh. in Carlsbad. Oh, yeah, like yeah. Like there's a little snack, snack stand shop. down no, at the like bottom. It's like a full-on restaurant. Full... Yeah. Hey, man. I know. Don't uh. care. <laughs> the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis introduced the masses to a number of new treats, including the waffle cone. Delicious. God bless. Cotton candy. Delicious. No, I hate cotton candy. It's like eating insulation. Yummy. Iced tea. Delicious. God bless. And Dr. Pepper. Holy crap. Man. Love you, Missouri. Yeah, thank you. But, you know, screw you about the cotton candy. (laughs) You know, I'm going to hold that one against them. Okay, well, I won't. That's just me personally. Yeah, I love cotton candy. Now, uh, four of the largest North American earthquakes in history up to a moment magnitude of 8.0 occurred from December 1811 to February 1812 in New Madrid, Missouri. Holy Moses. That is pretty scary. Uh, well, probably because of all the caves. Oh, that's a good point. That, you know, when, they, when the ground's hollow underneath, it gives away a lot. I that's, mean, I've seen inside of some caves where these rocks have given way, and these, they're the size of school buses oh, yeah. and things like yeah, that. I mean, they're enormous, gigantic. and they cause enormous rumbling in the ground. The first successful parachute jump from a moving plane, from a moving plane. Yeah, this moving, is important. Not a still plane. <laughs> was made above the Jefferson Barracks military post near St. Louis on March 1st, 1912. Holy crap. That's awesome. What kind of plane though? No, I, doesn't say. 1912. There wasn't much there. No. U.S. Army Captain Albert Berry climbed to 1,500 feet in, in a Benoist aircraft before positioning himself on a trapeze bar attached to the front of the plane. His parachute stored in a, in a conical oh, cool. pack attached to his harness and jumped. Wow. Aaron Space Magazine reports Barry saying upon landing, Never again! <laughs> I believe I turned five somersaults on my way down. My course downward was like a crazy arrow. Barry completed his second jump on March 10th. Look, man, so I guess he did do it you again. You can't keep an army ranger down, you know. Never again. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> and last but not least, Aunt Jemima pancake flour was invented in St. Louis in 1889. It was the first ready-to-mix food ever to be sold commercially. Take that, Betty Crocker. Up you, your face. Yeah, you cracker. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, some cool facts, uh, cool mixture of facts from the great state of Missouri. But um, enough of all that fun stuff. Why don't we get into the... Uh, Weird news of the day, James. What do you say? I say, let's do it, brother. All right, guys. Uh, this one here struck me as fun. This hit my funny bone. <laughs> that, you know, I usually go by title alone. Yeah. Sometimes the, uh, the the meat of the story is a surprise when I read it. But this one uh, is hilarious. It is dated 
June 13th of 2020, so just recent. And the title of the article is Poland Accidentally Invades Czech Republic in a Minor Misunderstanding. Damn, Poland always messing things up, man. Always, man. You'd be forgiven for not knowing that the Polish military recently invaded and briefly briefly occupied territory (laughs) in the Czech Republic. Seems like headline news, sure, but it appears that even the Polish troops didn't know what they were doing. Damn. (laughs) That's great. A spokesperson for the Czech Foreign Ministry confirmed to NPR on Saturday that, quote, Polish soldiers mistakenly deterred our citizens from entering a church on the Czech territory in close vicinity to the Czech-Polish borders. In other words, they crossed the border and were restraining Czech citizens from going into a place they thought <laughs> they, was theirs, yeah, I guess. No I don't know. <laughs> Czech officials say that the incident happened in late May near a small village known as Pulhomor... Ah. Close enough. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave it. Pulhomovi. Perfect. Something like that. Well, because I know Klotovi. Like I said, that's from my grandfather. So I'll, I'll just go along with that. Perfect. Permovi. Permovi. Just across the border from Poland. They added that their diplomats immediately notified their Polish counterparts and that the Polish soldiers are, quote, no longer present at the site, which Czech nationals can again visit as they wish. <laughs> as they wish. Well, thank you. I know. Thank you so much. Poland's foreign ministry confirmed the incident while contradicting the assertion that it was officially notified. Neither the ministry nor the Polish embassy in Prague were formally informed about it, a spokesman told NPR. Quote, according to our information, the case was discussed by the authorities responsible for border protection on the Polish and Czech sides. The ministry's press office said in a statement, in the spirit of good Polish-Czech relations, we believe this was only a minor misunderstanding that, that was quickly cleared up. Poland's Ministry of Defense did not immediately reply to NPR's request for comment, but in a statement to CNN, officials there offered further details on the, quote, misunderstanding between the two European Union members, which they say occurred just across the border from a small Polish border village known as can I buy a vowel? <laughs> Pilgrismov? Pilgrismov. There that? we go. We'll go yeah. with Pilgrismov. <laughs> hey, well, whatever, man. Whatever works. Soldiers assisting the country's border and guards simply established their post in the wrong location last month. <laughs> it was not, quote, a deliberate act, the ministry said. It was corrected immediately, and the case was resolved, also by the Czech side. A spokesman explained to CNN. Though both countries belong to the EU, Poland closed its borders for nearly three months in an attempt to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Oh, God. I didn't want to talk about that anymore. (laughs) Poland only lifted those restrictions for most of its neighbors on Saturday, a couple of days ahead of the EU deadline, to open international borders with the bloc. The Czech Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Zuzana Stikovic. (laughs) Stikova. Stikova made it clear that there were no hard feelings about the little dust-up. Our Polish counterparts unofficially assured us that, unofficially, I would would be more official if I was there. Our Polish counterparts unofficially assured us that this incident was merely a misunderstanding caused by the Polish military with no hostile intention. These fools have a map? (laughs) I mean, geez. However, we are still expecting a formal statement. Here's my statement. All right, let's hear it. Stay your ass on your side of the border, fool. <laughs> there's a fence. There's a border, you know, the border bridge. Get your ass over there. You know what this sounds like to me? 
Sounds like somebody was trying to play a real-life game of Risk. I think so. And they don't messed up. I'm going to send three armies in the Czech Republic. Rolling <laughs> dice. Let's Roll do it. it. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Oh, man. That's a good story, man. That's funny, that's, though. It, it's interesting. Yeah. I like I like to hear weird stuff like that. Especially accidentally when, invaded the country. Yeah, when two countries accidentally invade each other or whatever. Yeah, it's, that's, yeah. that's hilarious. Little known, I did that once. Mm. I invaded Mexico on foot for about 15 seconds once. Uh, I think you I found a I found a very shallow part of the river down by McAllen. Mm-hmm. Down was down by far McAllen when I was in the National Guard. Mm-hmm. We dropped off some equipment down there, so I've officially been to Mexico, but only for a brief moment. Fifteen seconds, right? I trot 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 across the river. Ha ha! I'm here, and I ran right back. It's too bad. You should have stayed longer. Had some amazing food. Yep. And some amazing beer. I was in military clothing. Oh dang! I was like. That might not fly. Yeah, you, uh, <laughs> you definitely don't want to do that, especially now. No, no, no that, that was them cartels will get you. Well, that was damn near what twenty five years ago. So, oh, okay, it's irrelevant now. <laughs> oh man, well, I mean, but still, even then, the uh, the cartels were still uh, pretty active back well, then. Well, I did so. the same thing for Canada too. One time, I was up close to the border, and I just put a foot across. <laughs> you, you put just a, to say I was there. So. So you put feet across on both both continents then, and I don't or yeah. b- both uh, both borders. I mean, yep. Oh wow! But I didn't cross cross. Oh okay. Well, um, why don't we cross on over into our main story, James? Sounds like a plan, brother. So once again, we are covering part two of Robert J. Gross. I was hoping the music could last longer. <laughs> you need more of a this guy, mental cleanse. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I, it took me a while to come down off of this. It yeah. actually, the story has affected me. Uh, oh. I mean, we've read lots of stories. We've had other serial killer stories, things right. like that. But this one, it really turns my crank because the guy was so blatantly obvious. And nothing happened. And it reminds me it. a lot of what's going on in the world right now. Okay. There's a lot of very obvious criminals out there and uh-huh. stuff going on, uh-huh. but yet nothing's happening. Nothing's being done. There's no arrests. There's no, no nothing. Except for, uh, what's name, Maxine or whatever, Maxwell. Giselle, Giselle, yeah. Giselaine Maxwell. Yeah, thankfully she's... Yeah, we'll see what happens there. Her disgusting ass has been arrested, thankfully. I need to check the Vegas odds on how long she's expected to live. <laughs> Because, I mean, I might put down some money. <laughs> Once again, all the information for this episode and the last episode comes from the Kansas City Star. Very long investigative report uh, published October 18th, I'm sorry, October 28th, 2018, written by Ian Cummings, Glenn E. Rice, and Tony Rizzo. And I must provide uh, my compliments. I want to express my... My appreciation for their work, this is actually very well detailed. It's very thorough, very well detailed. Yeah, it's yeah. a great, great story. And very aggravating, but still. Yeah. So <laughs> when Robert Gross and Dana Rexrode first saw each other at the card game in Kansas City, Kansas, their meeting would have consequences for both. For Gross, a short prison sentence, and for Rexrode, a lifetime of terror. The game had been organized on a February evening in 1984 by some of Rexrode's friends from the Santa Fe Railway, where she worked as a dispatcher. 
Rex Road found 32-year-old Gross sitting from across the table from her, and they hit it off. True, he seemed a bit odd and not particularly bright, but Rex Road 28 started going out with him, and she would regret it. When they took a ski trip to Colorado, Rex Road woke up one night to find her nightgown pulled up and the lights on, with Gross standing over her saying he was, quote, memorizing every part of her body, end quote. Ugh. That's, yo, that is the one. That's, it didn't even take that long. I'm already back <laughs> up to where I was last episode. <laughs> That's, yo, that is one and only red flag you need to get the hell out. Yeah. That's it. Done. Golly, man. They had been dating. What is it going to take <laughs> for somebody to just club this son of a bitch? They had been dating for six weeks when Rex Rowe decided they weren't a good fit. She found him oversexed, jealous, and possessive. She told Gross that he was strange and she was going back to her old boyfriend. As with Janet Manuel, Wanda Conkling, Cheryl Morris, and others, Robert J. Gross did not accept her rejection. Rexroad began getting repeated hang-up calls at her house in Miriam. When she got an unlisted number, the calls came to her at work, triggering an investigation by the railroad's own police force. Two months later, Gross broke into Rexroad's house. As he had in his youthful burglaries, Gross pilfered women's clothing, this time a couple of Rexroad's nightgowns and several pair of high-heeled shoes. He also stole her address book, some old wedding photos, pictures of the two of them on the ski trip, and a pistol. The harassing calls continued. In one, Rexroad thought it was Gross threatening to burn her house down and rape her and torture her. In another, the caller said he would put his, her sister's severed head on her waterbed. Police put Gross under surveillance. Still, he kept calling. A month later, police lifted the surveillance because they thought Gross had left town to take a job in Texas. A Kansas City police investigator watched Gross drive south from Emporia on Interstate 35 on May 19th. But... By June, police noted that Gross's car was back at his house. Within a few days, Rexroad noticed strange occurrences at her mother's house, where she had moved in to avoid the harassment. Twice, their dogs were mysteriously let out of the yard, first by someone simply opening the gate, the second time by cutting a rope and bending the lock to open it. Rexroad was scared. Gross's stalking had ended in murder before. But in this case, the harassment was interrupted when Gross delivered a mountain of incriminating evidence into the hands of police. North of the river, the early morning quiet was shattered about 4.30 a.m. on July 15, 1984, when an explosion destroyed a house on Northeast Wind Road. The blast hurled debris 100 feet in all directions, throwing lumber across the street and onto roofs of nearby houses. A man on fire scrambled away from the wreckage, illuminated in the dark by flames leaping off him as he jumped into a small blue car and drove away. He didn't even put his fire out. He <laughs> He jumped into his car on fire. I'm picturing that Simpsons episode when the car crashed into the school and it was a dream sequence. Yeah. And all the kids and the principal come running out and everybody's on fire. Yeah. Oh, geez. Jeez. Oh, man, that's great. No injuries were reported in the explosion, which Kansas City police labeled an arson. The motive remained unclear, but the house was owned by a woman who had bought it from a man who owned a bar with Gross. Police suspected a personal grudge lay behind the attack. Less than an hour after the fire, Gross showed up in the emergency room at the University of Kansas Medical Center with severe burns on his face, hands, and upper torso. <laughs> Fucking idiot. In the burn unit, Gross refused to answer questions about what happened to him, giving him, <clears throat> giving only his name, address, and phone number. Hospital staff grew suspicious and called the police. 
Gross ended up hospitalized for days while police found his car parked a block away across the state line. One look at the car only deepened their suspicions. Covered in mud, wood chips, and debris, the car showed fresh damage across the hood and rear end as if heavy objects had fallen onto them, a.k.a. parts of the house. Yeah. Someone had covered part of the license plate with duct tape, and dry blood clung to the driver's side window and caked the interior. In Gross's car, police found two gasoline cans and a map to the house that <laughs> Oh, and okay. That's like... Hello. <laughs> God dang. A map to the house that blew up and gas. It's got a, a big circle on the house and it says in big letters, blow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we could make some laughs out of this. Yeah. At least it, it, cause it looks like he's finally going to kind of nail caught, it. Yeah. Yeah. And they found a notebook in which gross had apparently written notes for his menacing calls to Dana Rex road. Dana don't hang up. It had only been three weeks since the last reports of harassment against her, but that wasn't all. In the trunk, officer found two sawed-off shotguns, including a 12-gauge. Not unlike the gun that killed Wanda Conklin and William Caldwaller five years earlier. The officers also found a gold ring that belonged to Conklin. When two men came to retrieve the car, police identified one of them as Gross's partner in the bar, Reflections Lounge in Liberty. That's a classy name. Yeah. The same man who had now sold... (laughs) The same man who had sold a now-demolished house. Officers told the men to get lost... (laughs) <laughs> with the explosion police and prosecutors on both sides of the state line resolved to finally file charges against gross and send him to prison meanwhile gross was stuck in the hospital swathed in bandages for the unforeseeable future this gave police an opportunity kansas city detectives still hoped to make a murder case on gross for the conkling cadwaller murder and the 1981 disappearance of cheryl morris they thought the evidence they needed might be in gross's home to get inside, they could use the treasure trove of clues taken from his car. But first, they needed help from the FBI's top hunter of serial killers. Detectives Robert Roge and Larry Van Draska got to work at a shared desk in the Kansas City Police Department's sex crime unit. To get inside Gross's house, they needed a search warrant. They needed to show a judge probable cause. And that could be tough. Cheryl Morris had been missing for three years. The Conkley and Caldwalder murder was cold. But considering what Gross had kept in his car and his recent multi-county rampage, the detectives felt they had to try. With Roach typing and Vandreska working the phone, the pair gathered a massive compendium of every crime Gross had ever been suspected of, going back to his childhood. They sent the whole package off for analysis to the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, Virginia. The unit, founded 12 years earlier, had recently expanded onto a second building as pioneer serial killer hunter John Douglas supervised the criminal profiling program. Douglas had risen to fame through his work investigating the Atlanta child killings of 1970-81, the Chicago Tylenol murders, and his interviews with serial killers such as Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and Charles Manson. By the way, they took his book that he wrote, uh-huh. and his book is the basis for the Netflix series Manhunter. I'm sorry, Mindhunter. 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 Really? Two seasons, absolutely fantastic, uh, produced and directed by um, the guy who did Zodiac, uh, David Lynch. Oh, nice. Very, very good show, um, and the it has a lot of the... A lot of actors playing the real-life serial killers, like Ted Bundy, John McGacy, Charles Manson, and uh, um, Ed... Ed Kemper as well. Anyway, uh, if you haven't seen Mindhunter, watch it. Two seasons. They're working on the third. It's actually amazing. The second season is all about the Atlanta child killings. Great wow. show. 
Under Douglas' supervision, the gross files were given to FBI profiler Jim Horn, who noted the early warning signs of gross burning a girl's underwear at age 8. That subsequently followed by a series of arrests and brushes with the law and mysterious circumstances, he commented, Suspicious events like the Morris disappearance repeated themselves, quote, time after time, year after year, end quote. The FBI sent its answer in writing. Gross's record was, quote, not inconsistent with the profile of a serial killer, end quote. You think? More importantly, the profilers made the key suggestion that Gross might have kept some of the women's belongings as mementos. Roge and Vandraska seized on that expert opinion, telling a judge that they wanted a search warrant to look in Gross's house for the clothes Morris was wearing when she disappeared along with her ID, keys, and a college textbook titled Politics in States and Communities. They were also looking for Wanda Conkling's checkbook and ID. The judge signed the warrant. Rose and Vandraska didn't know it, but they still had one problem. Gross had been bragging for weeks that he'd booby-trapped his house. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Early in the morning, detectives marched up to the front walk of Gross's house, search warrant in hand, until a warning stopped him at the door. I wouldn't do that. It was the next-door neighbor standing on his porch watching a parade of cops coming up 114th Street. Now that he had their attention, he related how, weeks earlier, an incensed gross complained that a burglar stole his 357 Magnum. If anyone broke into the house again, they wouldn't live to talk about it, Gross had said. The police regrouped and called in reinforcements. Gathering 30 officers, they cordoned off a two-block area and evacuated four nearby homes. They brought in a fire truck, an ambulance, and a bomb and arson squad with a large explosive containment drum. When everything was in place, the police carried tools to the back of Gross's house and, he, and sawed a large hole through the bathroom wall. Inside, they discovered a pack rat's paradise with boxes, stacks of papers, and various questionable items piled up all over the house. But no booby traps or bombs. Over the next 32 hours, dozens of police, including a second shift in blue jeans and tennis shoes, carted Gross's belongings to an impromptu command post in a nearby vacant house where they sorted through all his worldly possessions. Of special interest were some handwritten notes that seemed to make reference to Cheryl Morris. In the garage, Detective Roche found a pair of women's stockings with eye holes cut out, two pairs of handcuffs, a length of rope, and a pair of coveralls smeared with mud. <laughs> <laughs> eye holes cut out. Yeah. Suspicious, yes, but it didn't add up to a smoking gun for a murder charge. That didn't mean the search was fruitless. It appeared Gross had been making money by selling cocaine. Oh, lovely. But the police who had been telling him helped explain why he never seemed to go to work. The inventory included 13 grams of cocaine, scales, cutting agents, records of drug sales, several hundred dollars in cash, and a book titled Cocaine, the Consumer's Handbook. Oh, Lord. <laughs> you too can be a dope dealer. <laughs> Crucially, officers recovered a 380 Starfire pistol, which Gross had stolen when he broke into the house of his former girlfriend, Dana Rexrode. Once again, coming up empty on the homicides, prosecutors charged Gross with what they had. I got the impression he almost considered himself bulletproof. The same day, Kansas City police searched Gross's house. Clay County prosecutors charged him with the arson for the house explosion, while Wyandette County prosecutors charged him with making terroristic threats against Rex Road. Okay. These guys are in town for what? A week, maybe? Yeah. A week. Uh-huh, yeah. And, and all that time, they caught up with three decades worth of failures from the local law enforcement. And all it took was 
the house to get blown up and Rex to get on, not Rex, um, well, Rose to be on fire. The and map the, map is, <laughs> the map that says blow up with the two gallons of gas leaning in the back. And a stick figure picture of him holding the gas tank. <laughs> gas can- <laughs> At the hospital, sheriff's deputies placed Gross under guard, sealing off the area where he was being treated. When Gross went to court for the Rex Road case, the Wyandotte County Sheriff and Undersheriff personally ex- escorted him handcuffed to a wheelchair. His face scarred and his voice raspy from inhalation burns Gross pleaded, not guilty. Of course he did. He, yeah, of course, he's a jackass. John McNally, then a top assistant prosecutor in the district attorney's office, took the case himself. He was aware that the investigation had drawn the interest of local detectives and federal officials. They were clearly worried about this guy, said McNally, now a retired judge. Gross hired high-powered Kansas City defense attorneys John Turner and Carl Cornwell. They didn't even discuss a plea deal. I suspect he was determined to go to trial from the start, McNally said. I got the impression he almost considered himself bulletproof. In the court, the judge set Gross's bond at $15,000, four times the normal amount for that charge at the time. Still not enough. No. But while Clay County prosecutors seemed satisfied that Gross blew up the house, even if his motive was unclear, they never brought the arson case forward for a conviction. Instead, the prosecutor's office, then led by Larry Harmon, shelled the arson charge, and dropped it with no explanation. When asked about the case this year, Harmon, now a Clay County Circuit judge in Liberty, said he could not comment on it. Part of the reason for dropping the arson charge could have been the federal indictment being prepared against Gross for the cocaine and stolen pistol found in his house. State charges would be rendered moot by a federal prison sentence. Despite everything, the dramatic explosion, new evidence in old cases, and the months of terror for Dana Rex Road, who was almost too frightened to speak in court, Gross faced relatively minor charges. It would be enough to put him in prison for a while, but not long enough for some. The next-door neighbor who warned police at the front door only grew more worried about what would happen when Gross was loose again. He never forgot what Gross told him when they were friendly before he figured out what kind of man Gross was. He hated women, the neighbor said. He just said women were good for one thing and one thing only, and that's what he used them for. And he said he hated his mother. I was hoping he'd never get out of jail. In September 1985, a year after police searched his house, Gross stood in the old federal courthouse on Grand Boulevard to be sentenced on the cocaine and stolen pistol charges. Judge Scott Wright saw no difficulty in the sentencing, but he found himself at a loss to account for the laundry list of killings and suspicious deaths law enforcement officials had attributed to Gross in his pre-sentence report. Conklin, Codwalder, Morris, the aunt the drowning, and in all the other things for which Gross hadn't been convicted. It just seems like a strange set of circumstances that everybody, I mean not everybody, but all these women that he went with, they end up dead, Wright said. You know why, a long time ago I dated several girls, but to my knowledge, none of them are dead. It just seems like it's strange that so many of his girlfriends end up dead. It's weird to kind of put yourself in that context, Mm -hmm. but whatever. A pre-sentence report typically contains the history of a person convicted of a crime, in Gross's case, it stacked up every possible crime linked to Gross through years of investigation. Judge Wright would decide not only the length of Gross's prison sentence, but also whether all these suspicious deaths would be preserved in his record. Gross's attorney, John Turner, tried to persuade the judge to delete some of the most inflammatory portions. The Barnes drowning, for instance, was ruled accidental, and Morris was still listed as a missing person, not a murder victim. In fact, Turner argued he had reports that Morris had been spotted hitchhiking and her ID had been used in California. 
None of it, Turner said, proved any guilt on Gross's part. Yet because he dated her and because he had a problem with her, it's suggested in the report that he is a homicide suspect, Turner said. They've investigated the devil out of him, he continued. They followed him. They've spent 36 hours in his house. None of these events has he ever been charged with. The evidence in most of them is weak. The judge declined to remove any of the information from the report except to amend, quote, primary suspect, end quote, in a homicide to merely suspect. He sentenced Gross, then 34 years old. Man, this guy's only 34. He's done all of this horrible, horrible stuff. <sighs> Jackass. To the maximum, 15 years plus a $30,000 fine. Running concurrent to that would be Gross's sentence from the threatening phone call case in Widenant County. Convicted at trial, he had received a sentence of one to five years. Wright accommodated Gross in one respect, recommending that he serve a sentence at a federal prison in Springfield, Illinois, or Lexington, Kentucky, where Gross could get the psychiatric treatment that his lawyer said he wanted. In a statement to the court, Gross complained that he hadn't received mental health treatment in the 14 months he'd been locked up so far. Neither Gross nor his attorney said in open court what type of mental health treatment he needed. Gross also issued an apology. I'd like to apologize to the court for the mistakes that I have made, but more important than this, I apologize to my parents for the mental anguish that I bestowed upon them, he said. For this reason, I am 100% sure that I will never appear before you in a future case. It was a promise that Gross couldn't keep. Of course not. And uh, with that, why don't we take a little break? Sure thing. I'm Lindsay Valenti. And I'm Madison Stengel. And we're the hosts of Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny... Hey, man, he's a nice guy. And they're like, no, he's disgusting. He has hooves. Strange. There are EVPs of spirits saying, get out in a room where patients committed suicide. And obscure crimes of yesteryear. Here, Justin. Here's your first phallic amulet. Join us Wednesdays, wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. All right, let's get back into this sick, sick man's head, shall we? Yes, indeed. On September 3rd, 1987, a man out walking with his son in rural Cass County, a few miles south of Raymore, stopped at an abandoned cistern to show the boy how dangerous they are. He pulled off the concrete lid so they could see how deep it was. At the bottom, wrapped in newspapers from 1981, they saw the body of a woman floating face down in four feet of murky water. Oh, man. It was Cheryl Morris, the 31-year-old college student who had vanished six years earlier in Kansas City. Wow. As the crime scene investigators pulled Morris's fragile, decomposing body out of the cistern, parts of it slid apart. I bet. Waterlogged. Water for six years. Yeah. A finger fell off, and her skull and forearm crumbled away in the grasp of technicians. She'd been strangled. It was horrible, said Morris's aunt, Shirley Cook. The family had long suspected that Robert J. Gross killed Morris but at the same time, they had held out hope that she might be found alive. Now that they knew for sure she was gone, their hope turned to anger, especially for Morris's mother, Alice Eaton, who had kept the faith for years, only to be bitterly disappointed. I always thought she would come home, Eaton told her sister. For the years of uncertainty, of wandering and waiting, to repay with this was almost too much to take. To get through it, you have to be strong, Cook said. If you don't have God on your side, I don't know how you get through it. Maybe you don't. When the body was found, Gross, 35, was still in federal prison serving time for gun and drug convictions. But he wouldn't be there forever. Morris's family wanted to know why he wasn't charged with murder. Why didn't they do something about it, Cook said. 
The discovery of Morris's body convinced law enforcement across the Kansas City area to jumpstart the investigation once again. They would all be frustrated when someone in their ranks stretched the evidence too far. A special squad, now at least the third team dedicated to Gross, came together with seven investigators from the Cass County and Jackson County Sheriff's offices, along with Harrisonville and Kansas City Police. At the time, Kansas City Police had their hands full. Deep in the trenches of a deadly war on drugs, they investigated 131 homicides in 1987, wow. a 44% jump in two years. Meanwhile, that summer, they had other serial killers to contend with. Bobby Berdella, an operator of the Westport Curio Shop, Bob's Bizarre Bazaar, continued a killing spree that had started three years earlier and would end with at least six victims. At the same time, Missouri's most prolific serial killer, Lorenzo Gilliard, ran rampant over the city. Prosecutors would number his victims at 13. Both killers were eventually caught. Although Morris had disappeared in Kansas County, responsibility for her case moved to the sheriff's office in Cass County where her body was found. Former Kansas City Detective Tom Cook, who had fielded the initial missing person report on Morris, continued working the case when he went to Cass County and became undersheriff. For a while, it seemed like their investigation was moving forward. Cass County Sheriff Homer, 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 dope. <laughs> Cass County Sheriff Homer Foot said publicly he knew who the killer was. In 1988, he announced plans to bring evidence to prosecutors for a grand jury, but no charges were filed. Four years later, in February 1992, Gross was up for parole. He had served seven years of his 15-year sentence, and his attorney argued that Gross had an exemplary prison record at the federal penitentiary in Tohat, Indiana. Hey, that's home of Columbia House. Oh, cool. You know, 30, 35, 35 cassettes for a penny. Why don't you explain a little in more in depth to our younger listeners who don't know what that is? <laughs> this is all pre-iTunes. That's true. And yeah. we didn't have any we didn't include that in the state facts. No, we didn't. Columbia House is no longer in operation, of course. But they used to have specials where you could order like twenty albums for a right. penny. They were either CDs or, or cassette tapes. Yeah, CDs, cassette well, my days was cassette tapes. Okay, yeah. My days when was when I both. started, yeah. Both, yeah. Um But what you would do is you'd order it, pick all your stuff. You'd, and they'd send it to you with a one penny thing. Right. And the only thing you had to do was buy three more albums at regular club price within the next two years. Yep. But yet they harangued you. Oh my gosh. Yes. They beat on you. Yes. If you went month after month and turned it and mailed back their little thing that says no selection this yeah. month. Yeah. If you went like two months, they'd be like, you know, you're under obligation to buy. <laughs> so I ended up calling them and saying, you said two years, two years. It's only been a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. You I, know, I got so many CDs from those specials. This is a good diversion. Like 20 CDs. I got great CDs. And then, but the problem was, so people who don't know, uh, cassettes when they were big and then CDs when they were big later, they cost $20, $25. They did. That's expensive. A ton Even of Even now it's expensive for yes. a damn CD. I mean, normally at one point towards the end of their life, CDs ran for about 13 bucks. Even though yeah. I thought that was expensive. But yep. $20 to $25 for a CD and a cassette. Yep. So that's why people were hesitant to pay full price for three more in two years. I still have like 400 cassette tapes. <laughs> that is Because awesome. I actually did buy a ton from Columbia House. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I'd do it. I'd honor it. And then I would wait a couple, few months. Yeah. 
and then I doing it, <laughs> I'd do it again. Nice. Because we moved a lot, so I was able to use different addresses. And for was those... that right or wrong? Eh, I don't know, but I honored their commitment. Hey, I you... bought their albums, and then I would close my account, and, and then, then I'd reopen in a few months and order 20 more. It's not your fault. It's their fault for not keeping records. Punks. So for those who might know, um, the show uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix, there's a running joke where they still do that, where they are still – Purchasing tapes from Columbia House. Yes. With the, dog, with the dog's name, the cat's name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. Okay, so now back to the uh, horrible, horrible story. Let's bring it back down into miserable will here. <laughs> uh, prison officials expected to make a decision on his parole within a month were caught flat-footed by questions about Gross being the suspect in the 1979 killings of Wanda Conkling and William Caldwelder. Isn't that a derogatory statement toward police officers? Don't they call them flat-foots? Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's derogatory. From, I think it's more of a, I mean, like they're calling what flat foots, gym shoes, uh, something like that. Yeah, from the, from the beat cops. from the beat cop days. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the Morris homicide, an official with the U.S. Parole Commission said he was unaware that Gross was a suspect in the slayings and quote would like to see any substantial information end quote about his role. Local law enforcement lined up to issue warnings about Gross's possible release. Kansas City Police said they would review the Conkling Caldwelder case. And if this guy is going to be getting out, we need to go back and see if maybe we can do something now that we couldn't do back then. A police captain told the star at the time. He wondered if advances in fingerprinting, blood technology, or DNA could help. Sheriff Homer Foote said news of Gross's parole hearing left him stunned. I wasn't expecting this, he said. I thought he had a ways to go. Under Sheriff Tom Cook, who kept a photo of Morris on his desk as a reminder, said simply, He's dangerous. While the parole board's decision was still pending, Tom Cook personally handed the Morris case file to Cass County Prosecutor Dennis Laster. The file included crucial new evidence, several Cass County Sheriff's Office call sheets or investigative records that purportedly showed that a car linked to Gross had been seen several years earlier in the area where Morris's body was found. Tom Cook said he discovered the call sheets after the recovery of the corpse. Laster, writing this year from a Florida hospital bed, where he had been suffering serious health problems, said the newly discovered call sheets would have been key to connecting Gross to the dumping of Morris's body in Cass County. But the documentation was incomplete, with no reports attached. Laster said it might have been enough to charge Gross with murder, but probably wasn't enough to convict him. Without more, I seriously doubt we've been able to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, he said. The case was weakened further when a sheriff's deputy came forward with allegations that the crucial call sheets had been faked. A handwriting expert testified in court that it had been written more recently and then backdated. Cass County prosecutors never filed charges in Morris' death, and Gross's parole eventually went forward. Mm. Just one drop ball after another. The, the incompetence is just bleeding here. Yeah. Either that or, like I said, these guys might have been mob-connected. I'm sorry, but it's starting to look like they way too much like they were either mob-connected or threatened. Gotcha. You know, something. There's something going protections on. Protections do happen out there. That's I'm sorry, true. money yeah. talks. Unfortunately, the call sheets were important to establishing our case. Laster said, "Any subsequent prosecution of Gross for the murder of Miss Morris would have been burdened with the tainted evidence." Sheriff Foote said the fake evidence claims doomed the case. You couldn't get it to the front door of the courthouse, much less a courtroom. He told a reporter at the time, the scandal became part of a flood of complaints against Foote that later saw him removed from office. 
To this day, Foote says he does not believe Tom Cook would have falsified evidence. Foote was disappointed to never see charges filed. For her part, Alice Eaton resigned herself to the fact that Gross would never be held accountable for her daughter's death, at least on Earth. He's got to die sometime, she used to say, and he'll meet his maker and he'll get justice then. Morris's other relatives still search for answers. They lost faith in the criminal justice system and only grew angrier when told of Gross's many early suspected crimes. Shit, I lost faith like an hour and a half ago. <laughs> lost faith in episode I've been, one. I've been pissed for a week. <laughs> this is the justice system Morris's cousin Debbie Myers said. If he was caught, none of this would have happened. Before Gross was paroled in 1994, Clay County prosecutors filed a new charge against him in the now 10-year-old house explosion in, on Wynn Road. <laughs> that's still, that's still, Human torch. Blow, blow, blow up. I love that, <laughs> that's with the great. circle around the house. <laughs> Although the statute of limitations for arson had expired, prosecutors theorized they could have still charged him with armed criminal action for blowing up the house. Within two days of leaving the federal prison in Indiana, Gross, 42 years old, sat in the Clay County Jail. But he wouldn't be there long. His defense attorney successfully argued that because the armed criminal action was tied to a crime that was past the statute of limitations, the new charge was past the limit as well. The judge agreed, and the case was dismissed. So that's just, oh man. Gross managed to stay free for about eight years until 2002, when a stalking complaint sent him back to prison for two years at age 51. Cheryl Morris's mother, Alice Eaton, died while Gross served that sentence. Released again at age 53, Gross lived in his parents' house near 87th Street and Bristol Avenue. Mommy's basement. Yup. Boomerang kid. Punk. During the period from 2004 to 2016, Gross is not known to have been suspected of any serious crimes. He was treated for cancer around 2005, but beat it. Damn it, cancer, do your job! Yeah, no kidding. You're gonna take my dad, but you're gonna let this bastard live? Yeah, take my grandmother, but let that piece of shit live? His mother and father died during those years, and he remained at the house living alone. On Bristol Avenue, few knew of Gross's past. He built up a reputation as a helpful, if somewhat odd, neighbor. Bible in hand, Gross looked after an older woman who lived next door, carrying her recycling bin back from the street and keeping an eye on her house when she was away. People on his street called Gross, quote-unquote, the neighborhood watch. But neighbors also wondered about his mental state at times. They heard Gross talking to himself, and he was thought to be, quote-unquote, hearing voices. Mm -hmm. Still, Gross's next-door neighbor trusted him enough to call him for help when an intoxicated man came to her stoop and wouldn't leave. Police came to arrest the man, and Gross was right behind them. You know, Bob was the second person that I called, she says. That was the good side of him to me. We just helped each other. The neighbors would be surprised when a murder investigation once again led to Gross's doorstep. Now we bring it back around to Ying Li. Ying Li died at the hands of a vicious and determined killer. Why he killed her remains a mystery. No candlelight vigils, billboards, or public pleas drew attention to Ling's case. No obituary has surfaced. It is still unclear how long she had been living in that area. At the Northland apartment complex where she died, virtually no evidence remains to show the murder happened. Repairs have erased damage from the fire set to cover up the decapitation firefighters uncovered that early summer morning in 2016. Management is silent, and most of the people who lived there at the time have moved on, replaced by new tenants. One woman living in the apartment directly below Lee's, when asked about the crime, gave a look of horror, shook her head no, and shut the door. As a homicide investigation has wound on for two years, police 
released very little information, but they did have a suspect. Can we guess who? Police will not say what evidence led them to suspect Robert J. Gross as the killer. The evidence they had by October 2016 was enough to convince a judge to authorize a search warrant for Gross's house. And in a replay of the 1980s, detectives and crime scene technicians spent days combing over every inch of the longtime serial murder suspect's home near 87th Street and Bristol Avenue. They even took apart the plumbing, carting off sections of pipe while towing away his car. Police were suspicious enough to take Gross into custody and hold him for the maximum 24 hours they could unless charges were filed. There were no charges and he was released. Gross told a neighbor he had no idea why they arrested him and searched his house. The Kansas City homicide detectives did and they weren't given up. A year later, with no arrests made in the Lee case and Gross still free, a veteran Kansas City police official convened an extraordinary meeting of all the detectives, active and retired, who had ever investigated Gross. That that's a lot of people. Man. The private meeting drew about 20 law enforcement officials, investigators actively pursuing Gross, retired officers who worked the 1970s and 1980 homicides, and others. They pulled their knowledge and their memories, digging up what old notes they could. What did they know about Gross? Why had he gotten away with it? And how could they make a case on him now? Thinking of Lee's massage work, investigators remembered that Wanda Conkling, one of the 1979 homicide victims, had worked in the VIP massage parlor on Truman Road. It was where Gross found her. Retired Kansas City police detective Pete Edland, who worked the Wanda Conkling and William Caldwalder homicides, said Gross had always been known for his signature predatory behavior. He's a stalker is what he is, Edland said in a recent phone interview. He stalks these people, these women who discard him or break any relationship with him, he stalks them and he kills them. But even as detectives felt sure of the links between the killings across the decades, they still couldn't make a murder case. Meanwhile, Gross, at age 65, would revert to the patterns of his younger years, giving police an opportunity they desperately wanted to put him behind bars. About time. And I mean, yeah, he's been in there a little bit, but gee, man, not Christmas. enough. Man, I'm telling you, this is just, this the whole thing just reeks incompetence. I mean, this man at this point has been out, served a total of maybe he's less than 20 years. Not even that, because he served 7 of 15. So he's been there in jail less than 10 years and has been out about doing these things for over 50 years at this point. Yeah, it's ridiculous. 50 years. It's taken taken three different squads this long to even make any kind of case against him. That is insane. it's, it's It's nuts. By early 2017, Gross was a regular customer at a trio massage parlors in Olathe and Lawrence. And in a hark back to the old days, he had developed a bad reputation. At first, Gross just asked for normal massages. Then he started doing things like bringing flowers to the women working there. It just gave him the creeps. That is creepy as shit. When he asked for sexual favors, a massage worker turned him down. That's when someone started keying cars in the parking lots, clearly targeting the woman working at the shops in Olathe, where Gross had made a nuisance of himself. A-plus massage on Merlin Road and nearby Alpha Massage on South Claiborne Road. On October 1st, 2017, the massage worker who rejected Gross's sexual advantage woke up to find that someone had come to her home in the night and keyed her Toyota RAV4, digging long scratch marks up and down both sides of the vehicle. The same morning, another employee found screws stuck in all four of her tires. At A-plus massage, someone tried to cut power to the building. Man, he is going 
overboard. I mean, he's, he's he's killed, which is terrible, but cutting power to the building? Yeah. How's he going to get a massage? He's doing everything. He's just doing everything he can to be a complete jackass. Sounds like a, like, like a desperate attempt at this he's point. He's succeeding, though. Later that day, Gross showed up at the two Olathe massage parlors, but employees turned him away. He then drove to the T-Spa massage parlor in Lawrence. T-Spa? T-Spa. <laughs> That's a terrible name. Yeah. Where a manager and owner of the Olathe shops also worked. There, as had happened so many times, the stalking and property damage escalated to assault. But this time, Gross was caught on video. Good. See, you were just you were talking about that. Mm-hmm. You said as technology advances, is there video? Cameras everywhere. And cameras everywhere. Can't get away with it. At the T-Spa massage parlor, tucked into a strip mall at 23rd and Louisiana Streets, Gross barged in, handed some cash to the woman at the front desk, and walked into a back room and stripped naked. When the massage worker told Gross she wouldn't do anything sexual, he went ballistic. Stamping around the massage parlor naked, he berated the woman at the front desk, calling her, quote, a stupid bitch. The woman gave Gross his money back, but he wasn't leaving. Gross continued his tirade and threatened to call immigration on the woman, who was Chinese. Gross had an understanding with the manager, he claimed. They had agreed about what he could and could not do. He had paid for a massage, and he wanted one. Then Gross started grilling the employee about where she lived. He called her, quote-unquote, a lying bitch, and went on strutting around the shop naked. (laughs) Oh, Lord. When the woman tried to get him to leave, he pounced on her. You ain't going no place, he told the woman, caressing her face as she backed away in disgust. Yay. Gross flicked his penis at her. He tried to grab her face again, but she pushed his hand away. Then Gross trapped her in his arms from behind. The woman broke away. She reached for her phone and called for help. All this time, he's butt-ass naked. Butt-ass naked. Gross groped her breast and and slapped her on the rear end as he walked away. The smile on Gross's face was so big you could see it on the surveillance cameras recording the whole incident. That's sexual assault. It is. Oh, yeah, definitely. Big time. While Gross got dressed, the woman went to the front desk and came back with a man who told Gross they wanted him to leave. On his way out the door, Gross, still smiling, turned to the woman and said, I am going, but you owe me some money. Remember that. That night, the massage parlor manager was driving into her Lenexo neighborhood when she saw something unnerving. Gross was driving in the other direction, away from her house. The next morning, Olathe police officer Jeremy Kirkpatrick took another call from one of the massage parlor workers. He sensed something strange was going on. He had just been at A-plus massage the day before to investigate the vandalism there, and now one of the women was calling him, this time from her home. When Kirkpatrick arrived, he could see the problem. All four windows of the woman's RAV4 were broken, but the woman didn't speak much English, she called her manager to translate. The manager drove right over and told Kirkpatrick the whole story. She gave him her surveillance video of the trouble at the T-Spa massage parlor, saying she knew the problem customer only as Bob. Police wouldn't say exactly how, but Officer Kirkpatrick connected the dots between Bob at the T-Spa and Robert Gross. Good job. About damn time. Good job, Kirkpatrick. You got him on video, duh. He contacted Kansas City Police Detective Elaine Booth of the Homicide Squad investigating the killing of Ying Li. Soon, Booth was on her way to Lawrence, where she and Detective David Garcia watched the surveillance video of the naked, rampaging man. It was it was gross, Booth said. It was gross. It was, it was gross. also gross. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's double oh, entendre. Sure. That, that, there. Yeah. there you go. 
She knew Robert from a previous investigation and was very familiar with him. And now she was much more familiar because she saw all of him. Yipe. Gross. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Douglas County prosecutors charged Gross with aggravated sexual battery. Arrested and brought to the local jail, he posted a $5,000 bond and was released. Back in Kansas City, police again decided that Gross had to be watched and watched closely. For at least the fourth time since 1979, when Gross was first suspected of committing murder, police dedicated a special team to him. Once more, the police department imposed around-the-clock surveillance. This time, Gross became the target of the Kansas City Career Criminal Task Force, staffed with both local and federal investigators. Modern technology gave them an edge that their predecessors didn't enjoy. The task force placed a GPS tracking device on Gross's car to help tail him. Watching his every move, investigators came to a troubling conclusion. Gross was up to something sinister. On December 2nd, the team followed Gross to an army surplus store in Kansas City, Kansas, where he bought four sets of handcuffs, two masks, and two shirts with the word security printed on them. Oh, shit. Mm. Two weeks later, Gross went to a gun show at the KCI Expo Center, even though as a convicted felon, it was a federal crime for him to possess a gun. At the gun show, detectives watched as he handled an Uzi-type weapon and a 9mm handgun. Five days later, on December 22nd, it was back to the Army surplus store. Gross bought more handcuffs and asked about buying a bulletproof vest. After dark, Gross drove to Liberty, surveillance team in tow, where he stopped in a shadowy section of a restaurant parking lot and removed his car's license plate. He drove to the parking lot of a nearby home improvement store and sat in his car until a man driving a white pickup truck pulled up beside him. The man had two shotguns that Gross had allegedly arranged to buy. After a short meeting, Gross was carrying the shotguns, one in each hand, back to his car when task officers moved in and ordered him to drop them. Gross was arrested. Agents searching Gross's car found binoculars, a camera, paperwork from buying a gun, and $2,867 in cash. They also found a list with multiple Asian women's names, their phone numbers, and where they could be found. News of Gross's arrest quickly spread through the network of police, active and retired, who had pursued him over the years. The stalking and gun crime sounded like classic Gross to Edland, the retired Kansas City detective. Among my fellow retirees, having worked him and known his propensity for stalking and killing, we weren't surprised, Edland said. I'll be up front. He is a serial killer. He's a bad dude. If he comes back out, he'll do it again. There's no stopping this guy. Put a bullet in his head. That's, that's one way to stop him. Just Gross. plug him. Oh, he was resisting arrest. Oh, dang, look at that. Bam. Gross, now 67, sits in federal custody. He is charged with four counts of interstate stalking, three counts of being a felon in possession of a firearm, and three counts of receiving firearms while charged with a felony, and in this case, the sexual assault case in Lawrence. During a court appearance, prosecutors noted that they possess a library of investigative records on Gross, 16,000 pages, produced by several generations of police since the 1960s. Federal prosecutors argued that Gross was dangerous and asked that he be held without bond, and the judge agreed. Arraigned in January, Gross pleaded not guilty, and his trial is scheduled for January 22nd. Each of the 10 charges Gross is facing carries a sentence of 5 to 10 years, under federal sentencing guidelines, someone with Gross's criminal record would face the top end of the sentencing grid. Good. But still, Gross has never been charged in a homicide, not even Cheryl Morris's. 
He is a suspect in at least four murders. Conkling, Calderwalder, Morris, Morris, Morris. Conkling, Calderwalder, Morris, <laughs> and Lee. And remains under investigation by federal authorities. Neither they nor local police would discuss the cases. And then there's a reclassification of his aunt Juanita Lovich's death as a homicide. The coroner's office referred questions about Lovich's death to the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, which in turn referred questions to the FBI. The FBI did not answer questions about a possible investigation. Experts today can offer a dozen reasons why Gross could have gotten away with murder. No DNA evidence, no eyewitnesses, and dumb luck. Many murders go unsolved every year. Even the notorious Zodiac Killer was never caught. But the Zodiac Killer was a mystery, not a man who police have been watching for 50 years like Gross. That's what gets me. They've been let, they've been had their eyes on this guy for 50, 50 years. years. Four squads, 50 years, countless And never made anything stick until the last few years. Yeah. Gross's name was printed in the newspaper as a murder suspect in 1984. Police knew his face, where he lived, who his victims were, his crimes detailed in criminal records you could stack up to the ceiling. And apart from the murders, Gross managed to avoid facing any consequences for some crimes even when he was caught red-handed. The teenage burglaries, the house explosion, the assault on Janet Manuel, law enforcement gave him breaks on them all. Why? You know, I, 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 I would be very interested in, in knowing why. Yeah, I would too. Like I, mean, I said, is, connections. Is it, is it incompetence? Is it they're just busy? I mean, what is it? Even now, the justice system is doing what it has always done with Gross, settling for lesser charges, locking him up for a while, hoping he won't come back. It's cold comfort to think many of Gross's victims who have no guarantee he will be out again in five years or perhaps less to kill again, and it's happened before. Even if Gross is sent to prison effectively for life on the gun and stalking charges, the desire for finality of punishment and public safety seems to demand a murder conviction, said retired Detective Gary Jenkins, who pursued Gross in the 1980s. I personally think they ought to go ahead and put the murder on him, Jenkins said, because you don't ever want that guy to get back out again. If he comes back out, he'll do it again. There's no stopping this guy from everything I've learned about him. Gross's attorney, John P. O'Connor, declined to comment on any part of this story, and Gross did not respond to a letter the star sent him at the Leavenworth Detention Center. A nephew of Gross, Talis Gross, said he didn't believe his uncle was guilty of all the crimes that have been attributed to him. He doesn't think his Uncle Bob is a killer. Uncle Bob's always a killer. Uncle Bob. <clears throat> If they had any evidence on him, don't you think they would have pinned him on at least one of those murders, he asked. Any killing Robert Gross was involved in, the nephew suggested, might have been an act of self-defense. Oh, give me a damn break. Or, he speculated, maybe the, the suspicions are driven only by overzealous law enforcement. I think there's some rogue cops who are out just to get him, and they're trying to maybe put some dirt on him, and maybe people think he's this bad person, Talis said. Talis is an idiot. Talis is an idiot. I hope he hears this. You're a freaking idiot. Maybe that's a family member's perspective. You know how it is. You don't want to believe anything is happening like that with one of your family. The nephew said he didn't know how Gross has been spending his time of recent years. Gross used to have a job in retail, and he worked out a lot. Maybe a habit from prison. Acknowledging Gross's criminal record, Talis said it wasn't the fault of his uncle's upbringing. The rest of the family is strictly law-abiding. Where they went wrong with Bob, I'm not too sure, he said. He's probably going to be in jail for the rest of his life. And for some of his living victims, that would be enough. As for the dead, their surviving relatives still hope Gross will be held accountable for one of the killings at least. 
So that way he'll go down as officially being charged with it. With murder, exactly. Gross lingers like a ghost in the minds of the Conkling and Morris families. Wanda Conkling's son, Jason and Richard, were children when their mother died. They grew up knowing that Gross was suspected in their mother's killings, but didn't learn much more about it until they started researching the case a few years ago. Gross's arrest last year came as a surprise to them. They saw all the parallels between the new charges and what happened to their mother, the massage parlors, the stalking, the violence. When you look at this guy, it's like he fell right back into what he got arrested for, Jason Conkling said. That's a pattern, Richard said, almost exactly like 40 years ago. And Jason still hopes for justice. I can't figure out how he's never been charged with a murder, he said. It's not the way you think it should work. I'd like to see him maybe get convicted for someone's murder. Maybe it would be enough to, you know, at least he didn't fool everybody this whole time. Relatives of Cheryl Morris, killed in 1981, can't rest easily either. Her mother and father are no longer living, but her aunt, Shirley Cook, 86, and cousins remain frustrated. Good Lord. How many lives could have been saved if they could have caught him back then? Cousin Debbie Marys asked. In the end, I'm hopeful that he will get what's coming to him. The other families, I hope we all get closure on this. The boxes containing Morris' homicide investigation reside with the Cass County Sheriff's Office, where Captain Kevin Tymon found them earlier this year. He said it appeared they had not been opened in a long time. They're sitting down there, and if 10, 20, 30 years later someone comes forward with information that's chargeable, they'll pull that box out and see if they can close that case with some sort of resolution. Yeah, they won't bother. If the old, if, he, if this Bob character kicks off, Mr. Gross, yeah. They won't even they pursue won't even, it. They, those, they won't pursue it. They'll no. say he's dead. It's a waste of time. And call it closed. Yep. Ben Butler, the current Cass County prosecutor, declined to comment on this case. He said that because there is no statute of limitations for murder, it could someday be submitted for him to review. Lee's killing two years ago also remains unsolved, but is still being investigated, according to Blake County prosecutor Eric Zond. The murder of Ying Lee is a very important case, Zond said. We only get one chance to prove someone committed a murder, and we want to make sure we have all the evidence possible before we file that murder charge. Zahn said he has met with investigators on the case many times and that a prosecutor in his office who is working on it has been designated as a federal prosecutor. The case could be sent to federal court if that offered an advantage, Zahn said. Kansas City Police spokesman Captain Lionel Cullen and Police Chief Rick Smith did not respond to a set of questions from the Star about Gross, the Lee homicide, the 1978 and 1981 homicides, and many other crimes Gross has been suspected in over the past five decades. Colin referred all questions about Gross to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Kansas City. That office declined to comment. Of course. They, nobody wants to comment on anything. <laughs> on their uh, incompetence, yeah, for sure. I'm not saying nothing. Women who lived through Gross's attacks over the years, whose houses he broke into or burned down, who survived his hands closing over their airways, who learned to hate the sound of a telephone, who searched for a figure looking outside the house, have moved out of the state with new married names. Even from far away, even from gross behind bars, some of them still live in fear. Over the past 33 years, Dana Roxrode, who spent a lot of time and effort hiding her location and even her existence from gross, she too now lives under a different name. When a reporter knocked on the front door of her home, a one-story brick bungalow on a quiet street in a working-class neighborhood, she was not happy to be asked about Gross and her ordeal of 1984. She was afraid that if her location was revealed, it would put her life and the lives of her family in danger. He promised he would kill me, 
and everyone I loved if he ever saw me again, she said, and I believe him. She knows Gross has been in and out of prison. She knows he's been arrested again and now sits in a cell awaiting trial. But Gross was a menace before, and the justice system released him back into society to victimize women again and again. Rexroad said she hopes this time Gross will, quote, stay in jail and die there. It will be doing everyone a big favor, end quote. Yeah, when does anybody ever pay the penalty for something like this? God, man. You know, even the good guys, they mm-hmm. need to pay a price. If, yeah. they, if they bungle an, inv- you know, if they bumble an investigation. They don't. They turn just, him loose. They and he kills on. again. Oh, you know. They don't. They just move on to the next case. So stupid. On May 15th, 2019, Robert J. Gross, 67, of Kansas City, was found guilty of two counts of stalking victims across state lines, three counts of being a felon in possession of a firearm, and three counts of receiving a firearm while under indictment. He is currently serving 55 years in federal prison without parole. Good. So he will die. He will definitely die. Piece probably of pretty, shit. Yeah, probably. It's just too bad they soon. can't pin the murders on him. Oh, I know. that That is the one crappy thing about this, is that he will never be charged with any of the murders, not even one. And that, that, is, that is part of the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. Pathetic. All right, and that is the... Uh, Man, that is the very long, very detailed, wonderfully written piece about Robert J. Gross, man. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I hate this guy. I know. Yeah. He, <laughs> with every, with all, with Jeez. the other killers that we've covered, he is by far the worst one so far. The most aggravating because of the fact that he just flouted 50 years. His, his 50 arrogance years. in front of people. Yeah. Perverted, stupid, you know, just, yeah. Uh, well, you know what? I take it back. Not stupid because he got away with it for fifty damn years. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say smart or stupid. I'd just say lucky as hell. I, yeah, we'll go Super with luck. Super damn luck. We'll man. go with luck. I mean, he should have bought lottery ticket after lottery ticket with that kind of luck. Yeah, you know. All right, James. Well, let's give some people some good news. Let's uh, tell them where they can find us. Absolutely, they can find us on the fourthhand.com network along with our sister project, What the Suck. You can also find us on the Big Evil Facebook. We are also on Instagram, and we are on Twitter. That's right. Go on there, tweet at us, send us uh, comments, send us complaints, send us begrudges, send us nude pics, send us something. <laughs> send us anything on there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, we would also like to let everybody know, if you have any personal stories from any state at any time, it doesn't matter, uh, if you'd like to record those in about a 5- to 10-minute audio format, MP3, and email them to us at stateoffearpodcast dot, uh, at gmail.com. Yeah. And it does not matter if we've already done the state. We'll get back to it. We will get be coming back around to the states. Yeah. Go ahead and record them and send them on. We'll store them, send them, and we'll use them in the next episode because stories never change. Nope. And we're also still doing the uh, X-Files postcard giveaway. All you got to do is do a review. And a rating on any of your podcast apps. Send us a screenshot of that review. I'll reach out to you for your address, and I will send you a official 1996 vintage X Files postcard. While supplies last. While supplies last. They are limited, so send send in that, those reviews, and we'll get you one. And um, yeah, we uh, we also are going to be announcing our Patreon coming pretty soon. Yes, that uh, is coming out pretty soon. A lot of extra content, uh, bloopers. There will be um, extra bonus episodes. The rest stops uh, will be on there. They will know yes. they will be available on there to listen as I well. I think we'll as... have one more. I think we'll have one more for free, and then the, and then after that, it's going to be uh, it's going to be bonus content. Yeah. Yes. 
We'll also have um, ad-free versions of all of the shows on there as well. And, you know, whatever fun stuff we think about at the time. So, sure. yeah. Uh, so once it's up, go check it out. And if you like the show enough, maybe subscribe. It's going to be super low price to subscribe and you'll get lots, Very of, low. lots of free stuff. So, all right, buddy. Man, you ready? It's it's time to get down the road. Time for say? a few shots, man. I need to get this yeah. out of my memory. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Let's get on with it. Yeah, man. So, <laughs> well, uh, all right. Let's head on down the road, and we will see you all next time, man. Take care, guys. <laughs>